Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. Happy New Year. We are your oh-so-repentative um, re- re- hosts. <laughs> Mr. Craigers is me, and the other one is Miss Mel. That's Hi, Miss Mel. Hi. That's her. <laughs> that is you. And... We had a bit of a hiatus, but we are back in action. It's a new year, and it's time for some new memes. Additionally, it's time for some new podcasting. So we're back, and we are rebranded. Hopefully you've noticed our new fancy logo. And we worked really hard on really hard deciding the color (laughs) the (laughs) font out of like three choices i really like the red on the purple i mean i like the green on the purple with the red right with the red (laughs) it's cool so how are you miss mel i'm i'm good how are you i'm good what have you been up to since we last left our listeners in what was that november yeah yeah. Tell us about your life. Oh, <laughs> I'm still here. I haven't died. Um, got my master's degree. Yeah. Did do that. Uh, so there will be more time for for the podcasting now that I don't have to deal with discussion board posts and essays and <laughs> presentations. Um, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing. I feel like. You know, besides work and shit. And work and shit. And work and shit. What, um, what, what horror things have you been doing lately? Uh, I'm trying to, like, it's like one of those things where someone asks you, what's your favorite movie or book? And you're like, I forgot. Like, I instantly forget. I don't think I've ever read a book. No. (laughs) I don't know how to read. I don't Um, know. I've I've been working. I've been my my new not even a New Year's resolution because I don't believe in that bullshit. But like I told myself I was going to finish the stand. Yeah. Because I started it at some point last year. It wasn't that far back. It was like sometime yeah. in the summer. I think I started it. So it's not even like it's been years. Like when I was reading House of Leaves. Um, and the stand is very long. It's very long, and it's not a quick read. No. Um, it is very dense and it takes probably like this is going to sound ridiculous, but it takes like the first 500 pages before like the true crux of what the stand is about, like actually like takes the stage. Yeah. Yes. I said the first 500 pages. It is a slow burn. Um, but once it gets there, it is very good. And like once it gets there, you appreciate everything that led up to it um, because it's, you know, it's basically like super... Like, nobody else would have gotten away with it if it wasn't Stephen King. People would have said, cut that shit. But since it's Stephen King, they were like, sure, you can spend 300 pages on character backstory that's not going to matter because they're all going to die in a plague. Um, but it is very good. I'm, very, I'm about 200 or so, or maybe a little bit less, I guess at this point, pages away from finishing it, which in Stan language might as well be 10 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're getting really close and at some point this year I am going to finish uh, The Dark Tower I need to start Wolves of the Kala but after this I'm reading Chalkman because I have an arc even though it's out I have an advanced reader copy 
Um, yeah, I didn't really see any. Chalkman sounds so creepy. I know, right? And it looks so cre- like the cover just looks so creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I didn't really see any move. I didn't see Death Day. Like, I didn't see any movies because I didn't have time. Yeah. Um, the only movie, the ho- the only horror movie I saw this year was It, which we podcasted on a while back. For those of you who were there for that, if not, you can go back and look it up. Um, but the I don't know. The fun thing here today is uh, Craig and I's shared love of La Fantôme de Day, however you say that in French, opera. De l'opera. De l'opera. Um, which we will get to in a bit. It is the 30th anniversary this last week, as uh, by timing wise, like this month is the 30th anniversary of Phantom, technically January 26th. Um, but what have you been up to in the past th- two and a half months? <laughs> oh, you know, the, the usual work, play, living, learning, <laughs> loving. <laughs> meditating meditating lots of meditating you know i was up up in the mountains lots of lots of like oh slasher that was a thing that hands. happened too slasher too slasher two. yeah mm-hmm. yes you you watched the whole thing right uh i have like one episode to go but oh okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah it was not as good as the first season yeah no i was getting that with um it was way gorier than the first season. They took advantage of the fact that they were on Netflix. It was way gorier. Their um the ending was kind of a well, I it don't know. A, it was an ending. Yeah, it was an ending. They they could have been smarter, but hey. It's still it was still like fun, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Um I liked how yeah. it started. Like the premise, but it got Right. Yeah. So aside from just, you know, my sort of like constant meditating, <laughs> you know, lots of caftans half, half and then, um, you know, green tea and, and all of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the world of horror, I've actually, I've actually watched a fair amount of horror so far in 2018. Um, well, we started off our year t- together. We watched Creep 2. We did do that. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah, that was like the first thing we did in 2018. Yeah. Which yeah, I It was know. something. It was it was it was it's interesting because it was it was very creepy. It was very mentally disturbing, but it wasn't as nuanced as the first one. Mm-hmm. Like it was a lot more forced creep because you obviously for the most part know what's going on in this one right. at the beginning. So it was a little less inventive, I guess. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. It definitely wasn't as creative. It didn't unsettle me as much as the first one, but I liked, I still liked kind of the direction they took it in Mm -hmm. with, you know, he's trying to build, or he finds that he's building this relationship with this, this woman, this potential victim, and does it make him rethink his plans? Was this his plan all along? Yeah. Is she attracted to him? Is she not attracted to him? The sort of ambiguous ending of it all was interesting. Yeah. I'd watch a third one. 
Eh, no, I would for sure. He definitely plays a creepy, creepy villain. Mm-hmm. I'm into it. So, and I've seen a couple of others um, since since the new year. Netflix has had a few uh, original horror come out. Um, Before I Wake, which was going to be a theatrical release, mm-hmm. and the studio went bankrupt, so Netflix bought it. That was actually that's Mike Flanagan's new movie. Oh. He did. He directed Oculus and Absentia. Um, I'm just thinking which, about the ending of Oculus. <laughs> yeah. Rough stuff. And yeah. Absentia is one of my favorite horror movies. That one's really, really good. Um, and I also watched the Netflix original The Open House with that kid from 13 Reasons Why. Yeah. Uh, it was okay. Yeah, that kid. Yeah. I can't think of his name. Dylan Minnette. Yeah, that's his name. And yeah, that was okay. And I watched The Vault with James Franco. Even though he interesting, yeah, he wasn't really in it, and it was oh, and also um, Pensatucky from Orange Is the New Black. Oh, yeah, she basically just played like a character version of Pensatucky. And I watched The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was very. Oh good. my god, I meant to watch that you know forever ago when it was actually out in theaters. Yeah, in like September. Very good. Very. Oh, creepy. that's another thing we watched that was awful was Mother. Mm. There was a trailer for that with Mother, I do remember now. Yeah. So that's been my horror so far in 2018. Um, I don't think I've read any horror since the break, since we went on hiatus. But yeah. So as Miss Mel said, um, this month weekday is the 30th anniversary of the musical version of phantom of the opera andrew lloyd weber's musical opening on broadway mm-hmm. it has been running running continuously for 30 years it is the longest running show in broadway history it's been performed over 12,500 times and we thought uh since that's going on and in, in the great white way right now mm-hmm. we would talk about phantom's origins as a horror novel and its life in uh film yes <clears throat> yes jerry butler oh god we'll be so discussed. i think we've done i don't know if we did a full episode on phantom before i think it just came up when we were talking about like our faves yeah, I think when we did, we did an episode about our favorite horror novels, I think. Yeah, I that think was you mine. My number did one. Phantom? Yeah. So, do you want to, like, briefly talk about sort of the history the and history. the impact of the novel? Oh, then? my God. How long do we have? Okay. Ah. <laughs> um, so, um, like all great things, it was based on a book. Um. Mm titled the same thing, The Phantom and the Opera, uh, by Gaston Leroux, who, as you can probably guess, is French. He was actually known for his mystery novels prior to this, and you definitely get a sense of that um, while reading it. But the interesting thing about the novel and the entire story and the legend itself is that he pulled so much real, factual, historical things that were happening in Paris at the time and put them in the story that a lot of people have like basically 
you know, devoted time to researching and investigating if this story was true, if it's somehow, you know, there was fact in it. But basically, the premise is, is that this young um, opera singer who's like a chorus girl, um, one night dazzles everyone when she has to suddenly go on stage because the prima donna is sick and she's the understudy. And everyone's like, oh my god, she's this amazing singer. Where has she been? Who is she? It's not so, like, Paris loses its mind. They're like, we want more of her. Um, and basically what you start to realize through different points, and then she gets really weird. She, like, disappears for three weeks or something. Like, she's just very reclusive. She's very quiet and shy. She's weird. Um, <laughs> if that doesn't sound like me in high school, I don't know what does. <laughs> she disappears to, like, the coast for a week for, you know, some thinking time. Because most of the story, I don't, I Lots actually brooding. don't Lots think of- there's ever a chapter told from her point of view. Um, there's chapters where she very long-windedly tells you, like, catches you up on things, but most of the story is told from the point of view of Rao, or, like, a third-person omniscient, like, you're just there in the scene. So, basically, what happens is, what had happened was, is this young opera singer, um, garners the attention of this creep who lives in the basement of the opera house, which the real opera house had a subterranean lake because when they were building, they hit the water table, so it flooded the cellars of the opera house. So there is a lake down there. Um, and that's where he lives. He lives in this dungeonous, cavernous um, um, lair beneath the opera house because he is physically deformed. And at that time, that was like basically, you know, a death sentence in life. So he he's like this genius. He's very he's a, an amazing composer, an amazing writer, but he's you know physically deformed and like emotionally and mentally deformed as well. Like he's really fucked up in several ways. Um, it's not just that, um, you know. And it's this weird. He's a very complicated, you know, amalgamation of like how society reacted to him, how he reacted to society reacting to him, how he preemptively thought things about people and back and forth and yada yada. But the point is, is he becomes obsessed with this opera singer and he's taught her to sing like beautifully and taken her under his wing and made her a star. And he's like, wants to take her down to, to his dungeon to be his wife and live with him forever. It's very Hades and Persephone. It's partially based on that as well. Um, I think it sounds sweet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But listen, who doesn't want to live underground at this point with like just your favorite person, (laughs) just your favorite person, fuck the world to cuddle with. (laughs) Um, But she, her former childhood friend and like sweetheart, um, like waltzes back into her life. He reconnects with her as the baby boomers say without Facebook. Um, he finds her at the opera house and they like rekindle their feelings for each other, which complicates the phantom's plan to keep her forever because she agrees to marry this dude. And it turns into a whole crock of shit and a lot of people die. (laughs) There's some defacement of property. There's some kidnapping (laughs) and false imprisonment. There's a fire. (laughs) Um, I, I like that we've got, you know, arson, kidnapping, murder, but then let's not forget the petty crime of, like, you know, property defacement. The property defacement. That happens, too. Thefts, <laughs> minor yeah. burglary. At one point, the Phantom, like, sneaks just like a, into... Just like a lot of heckling. <laughs> well, at one point, the Phantom sneaks into Raoul's house and literally just watches him sleep. 
<laughs> and then leaves. Like, it's very... It, it ranges from ridiculously over the top to, like, very, like, petty. <laughs> but ultimately what happens is he kidnaps Christine um, and basically forces her, because he's got all this dynamite, and he says, if you don't marry me, I'm going to kill everyone. And us and myself and just this whole thing. So she obviously is like, yes, God, fuck, I'll marry you. Jesus, stop it. Um, and Raoul shows up and he basically she like talks the phantom down like we don't see a lot of it we hear about it later because again we're in Raoul's point of view but basically he makes her choose um and she chooses say he says okay you know it's me or you know you choose me or he dies essentially and she was like okay I'll, I'll marry you and the phantom is so moved by the fact that she was willing to you know live her life in misery and imprisonment to save this guy that he realizes okay I kind of fucked up Let's them go happily ever after, kind of. Kind of. That's my brief synopsis. <laughs> I liked it. Um, it was sexy. Thank you. That's essentially the plot of the musical doesn't deviate from that too much. It just kind of puts events in different order. And it mm -hmm. obviously condenses some characters and blends them together. Like Madame Giri is actually a combination of two characters um, uh, from the book. Um, who get pushed into one character in the show. Yeah. But. Listen, there's just not enough time. Yeah, but our main <laughs> characters are the fan the Phantom, whose real mm -hmm. name is Eric. Um, deformed composer man, probably really good at math. Um, Christine. <laughs> oh, probably really good at math. I feel like he'd be a genius at like he's a genius at everything else. He'd probably be like, oh, I can do that. Long I, that's true, and he does have a very like sort of like engineering ish sort of quality yeah. or whatever. Like he's he able to trap something. He's an inventor. He's doing all those like rigs and ropes. One and might say he's the original jigsaw. Oh, hey yo. Um, and then Christine is our, our, our ingenue, our damsel in distress, our lead. Um, Raoul, the Vicomte de Chani, is a childhood friend of hers and love interest. Um, Meg Giri is her biffle um, and a ballerina who figures prominently in the sequel. Um, Madame Giri is Meg's mother who knows the Phantom in some mysterious manner and kind of does his bidding. Um, and then there's Carlotta. Oh my god, it was like I knew I'm missing someone important. Carlotta is the prima donna, who's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, but that's you know the main gamut of characters going forward. So that's your little cheat sheet if you've never seen The Phantom, um, and are continuing to listen. Yeah, but yeah. So yeah. So the interesting thing I guess we'll start with with the novel is that people think this really happened, right? Because on right. the one hand, Christine was based on a real Danish singer. Um, I want to say her first name was also Christine, but her last name was not Daae. That was, it was something else. But she was based on a real um, Danish singer who sang at the Paris Opera that Gaston LaRue saw um, and just, you know, loved. He thought she was great. Right. Um, the Opera House, which you have been to, um, has a lake underneath of it. It actually does have a subterranean lake. It's not as um, ornate in, like crazy as the one in the show or the movies um or even uh the book for that matter but it does exist mm -hmm. um, you can um well i think it's sort of i'm sorry no just go for it quick sidebar um 
I think it's sort of like a, if I'm remembering correctly, um, cause it's been, it's been a good, like, gosh, 12 years since I was in Paris. But if I'm remembering correctly, I think depending on sort of like the stability of the tunnels, they offer tours. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was kind of like a leaning tower of Pisa type situation. Like yeah. if it was safe enough, if, et cetera, et cetera. You could get a tour of what's the underground underneath the opera house. Um, I think, I don't know if it was included in the regular tour or not, but I remember them saying that that was, was an option. Nice. They also told us, I didn't know if you were going to Mm. get into this or not, but because obviously when we went there, they, the tour guide did mention the novel and the musical, which drew a lot of attention and has drawn a lot of attention to the opera house over the years. And, um, a lot of people always ask, is it true? Et cetera, et cetera. Mel's explained about the singers or whatever, but apparently there was, there is an incident on record where the, the chandelier did fall. Mm-hmm. And did crash. It, and it, it was during a performance. And it did kill someone. And it did kill someone. Um, they think they know why it fell, but there's some... It was the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been so, anything. So that is also an interesting, creepy tidbit. And I think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that when that um, unfortunate incident occurred was close to if not at the same time that um this singer would have performed Mm -hmm. in paris yeah i mean it's interesting because there's forums on the internet of people who are like trying to hunt this down to see because he writes the book as if it were fact like he writes it as if he were a journalist who was compiling information like there's asterisks and footnotes which today like we take as a gimmick in things but remember this is like you know the 19th century, early 20th century. Like, this yeah. was not a thing that regularly happened in writing in terms of gimmicks. Like, yes, there are, like, novels like Frankenstein and Dracula where they are told in the form of, like, um, I always say it wrong, but epistolary novels. Like, the ones where, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's told in the form of letters or journal entries. Like, that existed, and that's, like, you know, our first version of found footage. But this is like that and like the next level up, you know, because it's like taking that and and adding layers to it because it's like you've got the accounts and then there's asterisks where it says like, oh, Madame Jury said in a later interview, yada, yada. And like, you know, it, it, it right. presents itself it's almost, like it's fact. Like a, it's like a true crime yeah. story. Yeah. Almost. It's how it's presented. Yeah. 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 So it's definitely captured the minds of a lot of people. You know, when you do look and see that certain things were historically, you know, did happen. So it's, you know, it's like become the legend, essentially. Like he's turned what in the story is the legend of the opera ghost into a real life legend of the opera ghost. Um, Because the show actually starts out. It's a very great opening um, with them auctioning off items from the now defunct opera house. And they go to lot 666 pause for effect <laughs> pause for ding right here um right here hey i get it um which is the broken chandelier 
and when they turn the chandelier back on is when that famous overture starts and we go back in time um but yeah like the entire thing is built my advent calendar is still hanging up oh my god <laughs> look at you you're just <laughs> truly the spirit of christmas all year round i turned and i was like oh yeah that thing on my door oh wait it's alive and well i never well- moved it it's still on one Oh. I never even participated in the advent. Oh, just save it for this year. Okay. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> anyway, point is, we'll is that the show very much plays on. So the show took that, you know, and the entire, you know, aura around it. And that very much plays into the to the entire experience of of phantom the show is that you're, you know, you know you're going in to see something that's a little bit history, a little bit legend a little bit grand epic tragedy um you know and at this point it's not so clear where you know the the fiction begins and the uh the factual events end um because there are people like you go in enough places on the internet there are people who will pull different receipts and say this thing is true and that thing is true and this person was real and you know people I'm sure who went out hunting for the skeleton uh, of the phantom. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, listen, you have to take everything that Ms. Mountain just told you with a grain of salt. Yeah, Don't we go just, hunting for like we shit in Paris. could have just straight up lied to you yeah. because listen, this podcast is all, we're going to tell you things as if we're experts. We don't know. We don't know if this is, if this, I don't know Parisian true. history. I don't know. God, why are you? Stop it. Stop the fun it. part is, is that it could have been. It the probably wasn't, that it but it could have been. been. Use your imagination. Stop it. <laughs> well, it's like in a similar thing where Victor Hugo um, decided to write Hunchback of Notre Dame when he visited Notre Dame and went up into the bell tower and saw the, whatever the French version of this word is, but he saw the word fate carved into the wall. So he mm. imagined this bell ringer so now it's like become you know this thing it's like oh the 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 deformed bell ringer up in the tower like you know you take enough grain of truth you know and create this i don't even know what to call i'm sure there's a word for it in literary terms for this type of of just complete erythral figure that you have in the someone like the phantom and the hunchback where it's like this tragic not quite a hero protagonist like, antagonist who's yeah, like larger anti-hero than life. gothic romantic figure yeah. yeah hunchback is a good um way to segue even though we're not doing segues in 2018 we're not doing segues in 2018 no um <laughs> here at splatter chatter please make that catch on in your lives <laughs> write that down write that down there are no segues but let's talk about the phantom on film Yes, starting with, I assume, the silent movie. Starting with the silent movie. Yes, exactly right. So, Phantom of the Opera, the Gaston LaRue novel, has been adapted into film a total of five times. It's about to be six, though. Hold up. It's about to be six? They are rebooting the monster franchise. Oh, that's right. The Dark Universe. This is the next one, yeah. Is it really the next one? I've heard it's the next one. That's see, I wasn't sure the status of that because the mummy like bombed, right? It did. Um, but they're committed to it. It was the next one. It's possible it could be in development hell after the mummy like did shit. 
but it was on the docket to be the next Dark Universe film. So we'll see what happens. Point is, there was one in 1925. Point is, yeah, let's journey back to the original, my friends. So the first adaptation, yes, it was in 1925. Famous um, horror legend Lon Chaney played the Phantom in this uh, original adaptation. It was a silent film. Uh, Lon Chaney was a big get. At this point, um, he was uh, sort of known to be a very masterful character actor. He was also known to be an incredible makeup artist. Yeah, he did a lot of his own makeup, I believe. He, yeah, he designed his own makeup um, for this role. It's, um, it's often considered sort of the definitive makeup for the character of the Phantom, much as this version is considered the definitive film version of the story. Uh, Lon Chaney also designed his own makeup when he played Quasimodo in Universal's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. Oh, this is how you segued. I see now. This is how I segued. But remember... But we're not doing segues. Exactly. So if you did segue, that would be how. That would be how. Exactly. So looking at the 1925 original, it was was a very lavish production. Um, It was Universal. The studio, not like... It wasn't shown to the universe. (laughs) Um, And it was considered, or is considered to be the most faithful adaptation of the novel. The original ending of the film involved a mob finding the phantom down in his lair, dead on top of his organ. That is not how the novel ends. And it was not what producer Carl Lemmel wanted for the film. So he ordered reshoots. The director, Rupert Julian, was a bit of a, a dictatorial figure, so he refused. So they brought in a man named Edward Sedgwick, and he shot a bunch of new scenes to create a new ending. But the new ending was very poorly received on screenings, and so the movie was re edited to get rid of those scenes. And a third director, Charles Conklin, was brought in to film a final set of new scenes, but those were also removed by Lemo, and in the end, they just ended up using the re-edit the, um, from the Sedgwick uh, footage. So it had a bit of a complicated production history. You know, before the time of Final Cut software. Exactly. <laughs> but... Shaney's performance as the Phantom, as Eric, is still to this day um, often celebrated as the most accurate portrayal of the Phantom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that's, that's a pretty just celebration yeah. to make him. Uh, I men- we mentioned that he did his own makeup for the yeah. role. And there's sort of an iconic moment where when yeah, his face is revealed. Yes. And that image gets used a lot. Um, it was plastic horror. And it was like one of those theater moments, kind of like the blob where people like supposedly fainted when it happened. They freaked mm-hmm. out. Like they found it very vulgar and gory for the time. Like it was a big, like you look at it now and you're like, Oh, he just, he looks, he looks like me on a Monday, but you know, like, <laughs> You know, at the time, the unmasking was like a horrifying experience for people. Like, it very much did the trick. Right. And I think 
like the face itself, like, you know, in current times were, we've been exposed to a lot of terrifying and horrifying things um, yeah. in the world and in film, but the makeup is still impressive. Oh yeah. Um, Especially when you look at what Lon Chaney really looks like. Yeah. And to think that that was done in the mid 1920s is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what I like about, uh, um, or what I think is really interesting about the 1925 original, it was part, it was sort of the beginning of this, the universal classic series, right? The classic mm-hmm. horror poster that did not really boom until, um, the 1930s with Dracula and Frankenstein mummy later on, you had the Wolfman in the forties, but hunchback and phantom was really when they started to sort of corner this market of, um, literary adaptations of horror novels. And I feel like when you look at Shaney, you sort of see, the prototype for what would come later. Like when he plays the Phantom, he has those very expressive eyes. He Mm -hmm. has those theatrical gestures, which that's exactly what you got with like Frankenstein's monster and the doctor and Bella Lugosi with the big staring eyes as Dracula. You Mm -hmm. know And I think when you're looking at Chaney, you're seeing sort of like, I feel like he set up the prototype of how, these monsters were going to be portrayed. And it's interesting because he, you know, he set up this, basically this line of human ghouls, right? Because none of these monsters are, are actually monsters. Like they're all Mm -hmm. versions of a human person that just, you know, happen to be this very like, you know, behave in an unhuman way or come from unhuman circumstance, inhuman circumstances and that sort of thing. And he very much set up that, that blending and like, you know, where's the line between a person and, you know, just a complete, you know, ghoulish monster. Um, yeah. And you can see that in his movement a lot as the Phantom 2 even, like just the way he moves around and holds himself and what he does with his hands in different scenes. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, and it still gets used a lot by, like, you know, you look at kind of the way people move around even today still playing Dracula, and it's, you can yeah. see Lon Chaney's phantom in that. Absolutely. And it's, and you, you were kind of touching on this a little, but I think, like, um, it's all about that sense of, like, and I feel like it really started here, with the 1920s and the 1930s, like these horror films, they were so obsessed with the idea of like romantic disfigurement. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Lon Chaney version of the Phantom is the sort of epitome of that idea in, in these universal classic horror movies, this sort of a classical mythic feel, Mm -hmm. right? Like he takes her down into the, 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 the catacombs basically they they have to cross a river like it's yeah. very sort of like sticks recalling yeah. he has this this lair that they mentioned in the movie is built over an old torture chamber everything feels very infernal and hellish like it's very sort of like grand and classical yeah i actually wrote a paper about that in high school where i compared um 
Phantom, the book, to specifically the myth of Hercules, no, oh my god, of Hades and Persephone, and um, Cupid and Psyche, um, and mm. then later, you know, literary things that come from that, such as Beauty and the Beast and that sort of thing. Um, but basically, yes, what this is, is is the myth of Hades and Persephone, Hades who steals away Persephone um, and d drags her down to the underworld. Which obviously, like you said, in Greek myth is, you know, crossing of the river Styx into this place that, you know, isn't exactly hell, but it's it's the underworld. It's the place of the dead. Um, mm -hmm. It's not a very pleasant place. And he keeps her there and, you know, he, he forces her to marry him and she's down there for, you know, six months out of the year or however long winter is. And like Cupid and Psyche, where it was like one of them was blind, um, you know, and the other was, you know, obsessively... Um, you know, in love and that, you know, and that sort of thing. So it, as much, like you said, as much as it pulls itself from, um, you know, real life events, it pulls itself so like, obviously in, in situations like that with the river where it's like, yes, they're crossing the river sticks. Like it's very much like a Greek myth being played out on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and just sort of this, like, again, very classic idea of, like, him being the inverse to the, the world above, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he lives, in the, he's the sh he lives in the shadow world. He's the antithesis of everything. The, the joy and the merriment and, like, light and creation that happens in the opera. But he is the reminder of sort of the price of all of that, yeah. the pain, the ugliness, the sense of mortality, which is epitomized when he shows up to the masquerade as the Red Death. Um, <laughs> the mask was, therein. <laughs> the mask therein. The, uh, that scene was actually, the, um, I remember looking at, at that scene in, I think it was intro to film because it was one of the first times they used two-strip Technicolor. So Interesting. Yeah, I've seen colored yeah. versions of that scene. Um, you know, because in yeah. like, you know, obviously Red Death, so, you know, it comes from the Poe the story. story, the Mask of Red Death, where he, you know, it's the plague following this group of like rich, bougie bitches around, um, killing them off. Um, you know, it's a very creepy story. Um, but you know, the Phantom but crashes. But I love that movie. Oh my God. It's so creepy. It's so creepy, but it's um, so weird. But yeah, no, the Phantom shows up to us. Like, and I love that too, even just the use of a masquerade. Because it's like, from our point of view, we know. So we're like, what were you thinking was going to happen? Right. Um, but it's like, obviously, they have no idea. But it's like, you know, and he shows up as what, in literary terms, was literally the symbol for death stalking around these bougie bitches who were like you know, having it up in this Italian chateau in the middle of the plague. They were like, oh, we're safe, we're rich, we're fine, it's great. And then Red Death comes stalking throughout, you know. He's the, in their midst and they have yeah. no idea. Yeah. And that's literally like, it's such a, it's so great. And that scene is so great. You know, with with the Phantom chasing around Raoul and Raoul chasing around the Phantom. And then, because it happens a little bit differently in the book than what ends up happening in the movies and, and um, 
And on stage. And on stage. But, you know, it's like, you know, that's what it is, though. It's like Red Death is chasing them around this this party. Um, you know, and so it's just very creepy. It's so creepy. My mom would tell me that, like, because I would watch, like, you know, whatever version of Phantom of the Opera I could constantly when I was younger. And she would tell me that I would have to turn, because it made her, she says it makes her feel claustrophobic. Like, the idea of being kidnapped and, like, not being able to escape somewhere. Like, just watching the movie makes her feel claustrophobic. Um, which is you know, obviously not a great feeling, but it's like, what a reaction. Yeah. Well, and, and that's true because, or like, I get that. Um, I think the novel might be a little bit different, but in most film adaptations and in the stage show, there's often only one scene that takes place outside of the opera house. Yeah. Um, and that is when Christine goes to the there cemetery. Are, yeah, there are more in the she's... novel that take place outside the opera house. But, like, for cinematic yeah. purposes, you're trapped in the opera house. You're trapped in the opera house. Yeah, you don't you don't leave. Um, you just even, you just go further and further in. Actually, you go further and further down. Yeah. And the one ah. scene that does take place outside the opera house, you know, it's completely dictated by the Phantom. Yes. Um, you know, you're, you're not free. And it's death-obsessed. Yeah, yeah, she you know, goes to a you, cemetery. You still can't obsess or you still can't escape this sort of haunting negative, again, the idea of death stalking you. I think is what was so good, like one good thing they did do, and we'll talk about it more, I guess, when we get there, but the the 2004 version is showing the Phantom, like in his process, basically, to... Because a lot of people, you know, counter back and say, okay, the 2004 version makes him too obviously human. It takes away from the supernatural element because it shows how he did the things that he did. But it's like, at the same time, it makes it more creepy because you're seeing this as a man who's doing it. Like, in that scene where she goes to the cemetery to visit her father's grave, like, you see the phantom, like, beating up the actual stagecoach driver. You see him, you know, assuming that role and she doesn't know and she's being led to the graveyard by the phantom by like him. it's so creepy <laughs> right the entire and that thing. even when she's yeah because that even when she's outside of the opera house she's still in his power in his control yeah, she can't still, get away he is still the puppet master controlling this Which sort of game what she says to ralph several times because he's like we'll run away we'll do this and we'll do that and she's like no like i can't get away from him he will never like he will never let me leave and even if he does there's that element of like she can't get him out of her head because for whatever reason she's obsessed with him too um and the whole thing is just so fucked up i love it <laughs> it's great but what is so interesting is that um Oftentimes, and even so, and especially in the 1925 one still, the Phantom is very sympathetic. Yeah. No, Um, people, you will see people, like, to this day, like, will make these, like, posts and all sorts of other things, you know, we live in the age of blogging, where they'll defend him, they'll defend his actions, they'll find reasons to say there was something romantic in him murdering, like, 30 people. (laughs) He has this, a sort of romantic conviction that is admirable. Yeah. Um, he also, his achievements as a, a, a showman and yeah. an engineer and an inventor. This is the He's, greatest show. This is the greatest show. <laughs> Plot twist is not about P.T. Barnum. It's actually about. Um, Precursor to P.T. Barnum, the Phantom. The Phantom. Yeah. So it's really, really interesting, you know. And... Uh, Often not in the later versions, but in the 1925 silent film, um, Christine is portrayed as being very deceitful. Um, She's Mm -hmm. fame-obsessed. She's very shallow. Um, Raoul is very dull. 
and the phantom is sort of coded in this sense of um being enlightened being cultured being very intelligent the older man Um, yeah and that's interesting because in the book you know you're following rao he's your romantic hero like it's a very classic romantic hero like you pity him like what you feel at the end for the phantom is pity and you feel christine's pity and you say oh that does suck like i do feel bad for this guy but like you're rooting for rao because he's portrayed as this young you know young knight in shining armor essentially who is hapless like he does stupid things but they're portrayed in the sense that like oh he was in love and it's you know he's he's valiant and noble but it's like how the audience received that was not not the way i don't obviously don't know how labrue intended it but like Mm -hmm. however he was portrayed or seems to be portrayed in the novel is not how history remembers this story like culturally like most adaptations have weirdly you know maybe even a little bit disturbingly decided with the phantom in Mm -hmm. some manner like you said they portray it as there's something admirable about like this obsessive crazy romance i'm not saying i personally find it admirable but at the same time it's like yes like i do wish things had turned out slightly different (laughs) right you know what what i think it is is that well and, and i don't know i mean and i think there are many many reasons but when I think of the Phantom sort of like in this big academic sense, right? Mm-hmm. He, he represents the mad, obsessed genius, right? Yes. He is, he is the artist. That trope in like an entire visage. Yeah. He is the artist extreme. And I think this, his story or his character can and often is interpreted as a metaphor for the creative impulse Mm-hmm. that if it, you if that impulse is carried too far it can consume you and it can destroy you this is what mother thought it was they, exactly <laughs> for those of you who've seen mother it's bad it sure did but you know and then i think for people who also think of themselves as being creative or think of themselves as being romantically inclined they latch onto that metaphor either subconsciously or consciously and yeah they want to think of themselves as the mad genius yeah Yeah. it's like you say okay these are my flaws but they they are a symptom of of my my greatest attributes right like that you know and it you know because that's the thing is is like yes you see Raoul, you see christine but ultimately the person that everyone identifies with and sees themselves in in a character is is the the phantom because Mm -hmm. you know he he is, you know, he's extreme, but he is the most, you know, complicated human person that you see because it's, you know, he's got the most blatant pros and cons and, and faults and triumphs to his personality. Like, you know, Christine and Raoul are very much stock characters. She's the ingenue. He's the hero, right? Like, the Phantom is something that's a lot harder to define, um, evidenced by our, you know, jumbling of tragic yeah. hero gothic antagonist you know it's, it's hard to say what he is because he's not the hero he is the antagonist like he is the demon stalking who these people who otherwise you know should be our heroes and the people we're rooting for but society collectively time and again in these adaptations has rooted for the phantom which i think is such a perfect description right like because we can't quite nail down how to talk about him or how to think about him. And so it's literally 
like the character itself, slippery, elusive, ghost-like. You can't quite get a hard and fast definition of the phantom. Part of it too is people are, you know, I think it, you know, it makes you afraid to look at it and say, okay, why am I identifying with this person? Like you don't want to, because he's a murderer. He's a kidnapper. Like he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he literally does not give a shit about, you know, who he, like, there's no remorse. Like it's the definition of, of insanity. Like he, he, he doesn't care. He, no, he, you know, he, he literally, you know, is all id, um, I think that also came up in my paper, the id and the ego <laughs> and how that is represented. But like, that's it. You know, he doesn't care about other people. He doesn't care who he hurts. No. Like he has no concept of empathy. He just knows he's obsessed with this person. And it's like on some level, you know, we've all felt that in a sense where we've been obsessed with a thing or a dream or an aspiration, you know, whether or not it is something that you want to obtain or, you know, sometimes it is some sort of, you know, person that you're that you're fixated on at the time, but, you know, we've all felt that to some degree and it's like, here's what happens when it's taken to an extreme and when people yeah. don't, don't step in, when society turns its back on, on things like that and you turn your back on, on self-reflection and just all this crazy stuff and it's like, yes, we see ourselves in the phantom, but it's disturbing. And I think it gets into the idea of... Um the question of the nature of his obsession with Christine. Is he truly obsessed with her as Christine the person, or is he obsessed with what she represents to him? The chance to showcase his genius, the chance to be seen in a world that refuses to acknowledge him and accept him. Yeah. And that comes up interestingly in a deleted song that they did for the 2004 version. Um, called no one would listen where basically they took it out because it like really didn't have a place anywhere in the show um and the tune of it was actually used for the song that's played during the credits um that has a name Mm. that i don't remember (laughs) that mini driver sings yep um but basically he says you know the lyric part of the lyrics he says no one you know no one listened no one but her so it's like is he just latching on to the first time someone paid attention to him you know or is there something about her that you know is he's generally in love with or is it just you know he is imprinted on her essentially mm-hmm. right um moving into the 1943 version which is the next yeah. big version like there are others but this is the next big version craig and i stumbled on this on tv yeah um before new year's um about halfway through this one is interesting it was that weekend, it was yeah. that weekend. this one is interesting because of the way it ends yeah i had not i've only seen that version like beginning to end like once and it was a, a long time ago um and then we watched i don't know i mean we watched maybe we didn't yeah, an we, hour of yeah, it yeah we didn't we changed Probably. it after a while yeah. the game this, network i think yeah so this is the second version this um stars claude rains yeah um the great claude rains 1943 um yes no it has a very interesting its entire uh, tone basically you know yes undoing everything we just said <laughs> so this was much more sort of musical melodrama um, it still had elements of horror, but it wasn't quite as heavy. It's actually kind of mild, I feel like, in compare- yeah. comparison to, to the 1925 one. Um, it was more interested in the personal drama. Yeah. 
And it was, um, it actually, it reused all of the same sets from the silent film, the sort of opulent, um, grand art decoration that was going on there. Uh, and then it built onto them. It was an unusually large scale production for Universal in the early 1940s um, when a lot of studios were cutting back necessarily for, you know, the war. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, the war. Uh, you know, the wars and stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Do you want to talk about... Uh, well, so, first of all, our Christine Dye is Christine Dubois for some reason. I don't understand why people do this. Our Eric with a K is Eric with a Q-U-E. Um, and it gives this backstory that basically the Phantom was this violinist who was dismissed um, from the opera house and who's pissed about it. Um, so he he takes on this protege, Christine Dubois, um, to, you know, for you know, to teach her um singing lessons since he can't he's basically he's like lost the feeling in his hands, like something's wrong, like he's like neurological disease. Like that's part of the reason he was dismissed is because he couldn't play the violin anymore. So he does this instead. Um and uh you know same thing goes, you know, he falls in love with her, he becomes obsessed with her. Our Christine in this one is like a weirdly progressive, like independent woman. <laughs> because basically what happens is um Raoul in this is not the Vicomte Chenny. He is a um inspector. He's Raoul Dubur. <laughs> um yeah. Inspector the Bear, as we were calling him. Um <laughs> but basically Which so okay. Oh sorry. Well, no. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, both of those sort of, like, alterations, right, make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Just, be, like, this this version came out in 1943. It's the middle of the World War II. An inspector is much more sort of salt of the earth, getting your hands mm-hmm. dirty, than a nobleman. Yeah. So he, he becomes a much more appealing hero. And Christine sort of being a bit more independent as a woman, I feel like also makes sense as a sort of like Rosie the Riveter type distillation. You know, women were filling in for traditionally um, male dominated jobs, you know, contributing to the war effort in very like physical, productive ways. They were gaining a lot more independence than they had ever had before the 40s. So... I see it. I get it. Basically. Yeah, no. And, you know, it, it makes sense for the time. But basically, the interesting thing here is that there's a love square. <laughs> Much like the love like a love rhombus. A love rhombus, like the last Jedi. Um, yeah, there's a love square, essentially, because you've got the Phantom going after Christine, as he is wont to do in every adaptation. You've got our version of Raoul, obviously, going after Christine as well. And then there's this new guy. Um, Nelson Eddy plays this, I can't say French names, but it's Anatole uh, Garan, essentially is this great singer, this baritone who comes to the opera house, who becomes obsessed with her too. He's a new bit to this. This is not a character that is from the novel or anything. I don't know if you could hear my mom sneezing just now, but she sneezed. Um, I did not, but now I'm like, I'm all about it. (laughs) 
but essentially Garon, you know, comes into the opera house and, you know, he's determined to have a showmance with Christine. So now you, but it's interesting because it's Garon versus Raoul. It's not the Phantom versus Raoul like it normally is. The Phantom is like this extraneous variable that these two guys aren't really concerned with. Um, they're concerned with each other and kind of butting heads and dealing with stuff. And the Phantom is like this mischief maker who's like responsible for, you know, like poisoning people and drugging people. And they're like blaming mm -hmm. each other and they're trying to go after her. And he, as he is wont to do, kidnaps her. Um, they go down to save her. A fight breaks out. Eric, Eric, I don't know how to say it with the way they, you know, wrote it, but he dies. He, he ends up getting killed. Um, in a cave-in after the three of them escape. And then the two of them are like, okay, so, like, choose between us. Like, we need we need you to choose one of us. And she's like, fuck you guys, and leaves. She's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And, and leaves to go off and be a big singing star. And they, like, the movie ends with them, like, going to, like, you know, be miserable together, essentially. Which is <laughs> such a crazy ending for <laughs> The opera. Uh, and kind of how you wish it would end in terms of like Eric and the Phantom. It's like, but why do I have to choose either of you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a whole other issue. But um, no other version really did something like this. And like you know, now that you bring it up, it does make sense for the wartime. You know, it's like you have the female empowerment of Rosie the Riveter. You have this change of um ideals from like okay we don't care about people who are born into their station we care more about this person who is you know working and and making something of their lives and that sort of thing um yeah you know and is a hero because he's like getting in the dirt not because he's you know a pretty boy in a mansion who's got a nice title and you know a, a fairy tale romantic childhood story about getting a fucking scarf from the ocean or something um but uh you know, and it's interesting. I don't really like this version just because of it makes so many changes. It is not the one that it is by far not the most changes a film has no, made. No, we're about to get to that one. I am thinking of one very oh. specific one. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I this is not one of my more favorite ones. Um, but it is, you know, it is worth checking out. Um, just because of how much of an alteration it makes in, you know, adding these extra elements and then changing Christine's entire tone at the end. And I will say that Claude Rains is a good phantom. And this one did have, he is, and it did have a legacy to it because mm -hmm. his disfigurement was the result of an accident in this version. It was not something he was born with, like the novel um, says. He was born just disfigured. Um, this one... It, you know, it says it happened from a burning, essentially, um, that happened later in life. And that's something that gets copied a lot in later what versions. What do you make of that change? It's interesting because it, it sets up this, like, sort of tragic thing, right? Like, it's like, you know, it's like it didn't start out this way. Like, there was hope, right? Like, there was there was this, this person and then that happened, right? Like... In the yeah. novel, he very much goes on these tangents about, like, he was born and that was it. Like, he was fucked. Like, his mother hated him. His father, like, never even knew him because he ran off. But it's like, there's tragedy in both those things because you could say, okay, the Phantom was born and never had a chance. Or you could say, okay, he did have a chance. He was this person who has poten had potential and then something tragic happened and ruined it. And it's like, you know, pick your poison. What to you is more... Um, more, you know, just gut-wrenching to think about. 
um you know and it's there's again there's pros and cons to both of it because it's like yeah the phantom's born this way and it's like he had all this potential in his mind it was just you know trapped inside this body that the society at the time would not accept and he mm. reacted the way he reacted and then you've got this version where it's like he had potential and he was somebody it's more of like the greek tragic hero where it was like he was on top he had a position and then something happened and he lost it right um, so it depends on sensibilities i guess which I think the sensibilities at the time, it would have made him more sympathetic because, oh, he was somebody and then a tragic twist of fate, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Whereas versus being born that way and the un uncomfortable um, sensibility of being like, well, that's what, you know, fate or God or somebody yeah. intended. <clears throat> yeah. So I don't have, you know. Um, yeah. And, and again, like, it's like, I don't prefer one over the other because it's like they're telling two very different stories about, right. um, the entire essence of the Phantom. So it's like, I don't mind it. Um, and especially in the, the ver a version we will get to starring the talk of the town, <laughs> Robert Englund, um, portrays the situation as a very Faustian, um, <laughs> reasoning behind the disfigurement um but yeah so we're almost there we're almost there we've got a couple so to next before then. Uh, so the third direct adaptation slash major adaptation um we're not covering everything by the way guys no we're there's only, a fuck ton if you we're only covering the five there's some in japanese there's eastern european ones like we're talking yes. about english language major these adaptations are the, these are the five major official adaptations um the third of which was the 1962 um british version part of the hammer it was a hammer series hammer film productions uh famous um horror film studio in britain that operated in the 50s and 60s and somewhat in the 70s um it's come back in recent years mm -hmm. but uh hammer horror hammer horror exactly right um which should, we should do like a history of hammer horror series sidebar hammer mm -hmm. horror behind the scenes production notes so yeah so this was the the um this was the Hammer version in 1962. It starred Herbert Lom as the Phantom, or his uh, alias, Professor Petrie. <laughs> Never forget. And there are so many deviations from the story. In, Let's start uh, with the location. <laughs> Let's start with the fact that, hey, fuck Paris. <laughs> We're London. In London this time around. We are in very late Victorian London. It actually might even be Edwardian London. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I know that it's turn of the century. Um, it, it really doesn't matter. And um, many of the uh, uh, general characters that appear in one way or another do not appear this time around. Of course, we have the love triangle. Um, we have Herbert Lom as the Phantom. We have Christine. I think she's Christine. Christine Charles. Charles in this version, and we have a character known as Harry Hunter, who is the Rowell um, stand-in. Right. Stand -in. Harry. I mean, this performance. 
right? At this performance, the role of Rao will be played by Harry Hunter. And I, this is also similar to the Claude Rains version. I think I've seen this version twice, potentially like two and a half times. And I, I never, ever forget the ending of this. It one. ends so weird. It ends so weird. They move, ironically, just like music, uh, the film version of the musical did. The chandelier drama is moved to the very end of the story. And there's this whole sacrifice thing. The Phantom has this like major redemptive moment where he saves Christine's life. And um, I always was just struck at how not fitting to the story that was. Yeah. Well, so the chandelier crashing timeline is a thing that's kind of not a debate, but it's like a thing even in the musical. Because according to Andrew Lloyd Webber, he originally wanted the chandelier to crash the way it did in the movie. Like he wanted to, it to crash at the towards you know during the climax, but like technologically wise, like they just couldn't make that happen and get it reset to continue the scene, which is why it happens when it at, happens at, is at the end of the act when they can be like, all right, we have to okay, we have to redo this whole thing. Um, there was a stage version of Phantom that was a compressed ninety minute version that played in Las Vegas, where the chandelier did crash at the mm -hmm. end of the show the way they wanted it to because technology has advanced um mm -hmm. the chandelier when it crashes in the book crashes like it does um in the show it crashes in the middle because it's basically the phantoms warning about you know people not um obeying my instructions obeying his instructions um this movie also takes the um accidental disfigurement because he is splashed with acid and that's what causes the on his face that's the technical term for it is on the face um mm -hmm. yes very yes but yeah no the ending is so it's strange. weird it's mm -hmm. it and it ends so abruptly it ends so abruptly and he and it's such a clear redemptive act mm -hmm. you know where versus the sort of like murkier intentions of why the phantom lets her go, you know, like, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Not that that act isn't redemptive, but yeah, I don't know. It's like redemptive it, and then it cuts it all, itself off so that you don't have time to like ruminate on it. No, because then it's just done. <sighs> yeah, it's like it basically just, it's like, this is what happened, we're done mm. um, type thing. He's it's like exposed there's like half of a confrontation and then chandelier saves Christine dies. end. yeah. Cause the chandelier, he doesn't crash the chandelier himself. Um, no, it's just the dwarf no. does it. This character that they've invented for this movie as well is the, just called the dwarf. Um, who's like fucking around in the, um, he doesn't do like, he's fucking around in the catwalks and like he knocks the chandelier over. And it almost, um, you know, takes out Christine and, um, you know, he pushes her out of the way and then he gets fucked as a result. Um, yeah, yeah, this is regarded, like, as a very much one of the uh, less than stellar adaptations of the story. Yeah. So... 
Eh. And it's um, interesting because it comes in like 62, right? Like, you know, like at least yeah. in the 40s, we could attribute a lot to the culture of whence it comes from. This, like, there's not a lot that I can defend. Because <laughs> you would have thought in in the early 60s, like, that would have been an interesting time to deep dive into the the really dark macabre aspects of this story. But this just erases a lot of that morbid side to the Phantom. He's very much a tragic hero in in this version, more yeah. so than in many, many other versions. So it's yeah. a bit odd. It's, like, so overt. Like, before it's, you know, it's like, the overt. subtle way you respond to things. This, it's, like, it very overtly tries to, um, you know redeem him in this like crazy bombast and it's it because of the way it ends it's like you don't get anyone else's reaction to it right like it happens and that's it and it's done it's like well what does christine think about this what does our ral stand and think about this um just to say yeah so i don't know it's weird but it exists and it started the nitric acid bit where he gets you know hit in the face with the acid uh is one that does get repeated from time to time specifically like, specifically, the acid thing is a cultural, um, that just stuck in a lot of people's brains. They're like, oh, yeah, the Phantom, like, um, got, you know, like, messed up in the face by acid. Like, that's things that, that's something that people will remember and will say, like, you know, that's a common, like, if you're at a trivia night, you know, and people say, oh, like, originally, why was the Phantom deformed? Like, you will get people who say, like, oh, he got splashed in the face with acid and it's like that's not the case it's just for whatever we're reason, here to save you at that trivia night for whatever reason this version stuck we're here to get you to the final round yeah yeah so that's the hammer version mm-hmm. the fourth major adaptation came in 1989 also just called the side phantom note the 1974 the phantom of the paradise is oh, to yeah. check out we don't have to talk oh, about it is. but um just delve uh, into that for yourself i am happy i will gladly do an episode of phantom of the paradise if it's a booze and booze yeah and we we'll, can have we'll leave it at that we'll have the, <laughs> the mystery of it and leave it at that and go to the robert england <laughs> version the enticed. Yes, the Robert Anglin version in 1989. Um, now remember, this is post-musical. Like, the musical has come out at this point. Musical has come out. The musical is about, um, it's spent about a year on Broadway at this point, and it has spent about three years in the West End on London. Mm-hmm. So its name is out there. And this, as Mel said is the version that is often discussed as taking the most deviations from the original novel while still being regarded as a direct adaptation of the novel. (laughs) Very, very loosely. (laughs) Yeah. So for starters, I mean, I know that Victorian London shook you guys to the core before, but this time we're in Manhattan when we begin our story. And not only are we in Manhattan, we're in present day at the time, Manhattan, when we begin. Nineteen eighty nine Manhattan. Nineteen eighty nine. Where talented Juilliard student Christine Day, Day is discovers an old opera 
the um by a mysterious composer named Eric Dress or Dessler. Uh, sorry, my apologies. And she and her frumpy friend Meg, because <laughs> Meg is always frumpy, start looking in to the musical and this strange composer and da 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 and then they find basically what is a cursed um, score book from the from the production and Christine is taken back in time right it is a time traveling phantom travels. of the opera story yeah yeah. <laughs> and from there, the story more or less plays out as you would expect. Um, but with a shit ton more gore. Yeah. Oh my God. It's such a. So let's start with the Phantom's disfigurement, right? Like it is very much like a Faustian thing that happens. Like he makes a deal and like you see his face getting like burned after the deal because he was basically like signing off his soul and his face and what have you for success as a composer and it's like really you know it's Robert Englund so you get to see his face melt but not to be outdone the body that they find flayed in the Carlotta Standin's dressing room or I guess she is called Carlotta <laughs> in this version but point is yeah I think so But yeah, it's a very, very gory, gory version. Like, this is just a super 1980s Gore. slasher version. It is. It is total slasher version. And remember, this was the late 80s when horror was beginning its, um, its Nona period. Like, where we had all of these sort of endless sequels that were happening with Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and people were getting very tired of horror. So you can probably guess that this movie was not well received. I remember renting it from Blockbuster. Like I remember going to Bl like this when I, I went in and grabbed this movie and I was like, what the fuck did I just watch as an eight year old? I I remember the cover of the VHS um, because, you know, it has Robert Anglin on it. And his hat looks exactly like the Freddy hat. Yeah. And he's kind of, you can see like half of his face, I think. Like yeah, he's, his he's, got a, face. he's got a mask partially, like he's taking a mask off on the poster. Yeah, and the, the makeup for his disfigurement as the Phantom is, like, almost identical to the Freddy Krueger makeup. Yeah, because it's, like, literally it's a burned face because that's what Freddy yeah. was. He was burned. Yeah. Um, so they were very much trying to capitalize on a couple different things with this yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. It's, um... I applaud it for going dark again. You know, like, after 62, trying to get back to the sort of, like, gothic origins of the story. But it's just a bit, I don't know, it's just a bit. It's it's very much a bit. Um, you know, the time travel really is what gets me to begin with. Um, the fact that she travels back in time 
by reading this <laughs> and becomes like add anything. No, like she's you know? she starts out in the present day and just becomes Christine in the past. But like nothing there's, there's no reason for either of those things. No, there's no reason. You could have just opened the like in the past like as all the other stories do. Or set it in the present if that's what you wanted to do. Or set it in the present if what that's you were what doing. You're... Like why? <laughs> for why? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it is a very gory version. It very much wants to be a slasher horror. Um, it keeps, like, you know, it renames Raoul, um, you know, it, it, but it keeps some characters, but essentially, like, the tragedy, the, the romanticism is not here. It's literally just an obsessed serial killer um, with this girl who, you know, becomes famous at the opera by traveling back in time. Um <laughs> Because at the end of the movie, she comes back to the present. Like, she's back right. in, in, like, and, like, you know, it's like no time has passed, you know. Um, so it's like, I don't know, it's just such a strange choice. <laughs> it's a very strange choice. And it doesn't land. No. And, you know, like we said, it's very gory. You know, you see the Phantom's disfigurement. Um, you know, it's, you know, when they do do the reveal of his face, it's very, like detailed and you know there's this long shot of you know his gross face and there's this body that they find at one point that's been like flayed and skinned that's hanging and flayed and skinned I know means the same thing um (laughs) they weren't gonna say anything they can't um, say anything but it's it's hanging in Carlotta's dressing room like you know it's messed up (laughs) it is messed up and it's like I get like okay maybe you were trying to go for some of the same, you know, horrificness that one might have found in the um, original, you know, um, Lon Chaney version, but it's like, it's still just a 1980s B slasher. Yeah. Which, when you're in the mood for a 1980s B slasher, it's great. <laughs> But when you're sitting down and you kind of, you're like, oh, I'm going to watch some quality horror, I wouldn't go to this first. No. Or second. Or second. Or, you know, Ever. for a while. <laughs> so the last of the major film adaptations we will discuss is the 2004 adaptation, which was the adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's stage musical. Mm-hmm. And it starred Gerard Butler as the Phantom. Emmy Rossum as Christine and Patrick Wilson Patrick. as Raoul, who is once again the Vicomte de Chagny. Vicomte de Chagny, once again. Um, and Anne Hathaway was originally supposed to play Christine, but she had to back out because she had to film Princess Diaries too. Um, <laughs> so Emmy Rossum, who was basically an unknown and was 16 years old when they were filming this, um, was Christine. And she went on to, you know, star in other films such as The Day After Tomorrow. Um, Or I guess The Day After Tomorrow maybe came out before this. I'm not sure. Um, I think that was also 2004. It might have came out at the same time. Yeah. Um, So, yes. This version was the long-awaited film adaptation of the original musical, which there had been talks to adapt it, like 
for a long time. Like originally they had plans to make it a movie with the original Phantom and Christine, um, Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman. Um, it obviously did not pan out. Um, and we get to the 2004 version where um, directed by the guy who did Phone Booth. <laughs> Schum um, Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher yeah. uh, directs it. Um, for some reason, Cash Gerard Butler. He did Batman Forever. He did. Um, for some reason, Cash Gerard Butler, as a phantom, <laughs> who you will know of, um, this is Sparta fame. Same dude. I'm a um, Yeah, Emmy Rossum was good as Christine. I, did, I didn't mind her. She was fine. Patrick Wilson, the best cast, and they did say he was the first person cast um, in the film, so that checks out, because he yeah. was easily the best person that they Obviously. cast. Yeah. Um, he does a great row, but yeah, basically, you know, this is a version that is faithful to the musical adaptation, um, right. and it is fairly faithful to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The I mean, only you thing... You're, you're parred down on the horror because the musical, the stage show, is parred yeah. down on the horror elements. They're still there, but they're, it's not, um, it's not quite as much. Um, the chandelier's demise is moved to the the end, the climax of the entire story. Um, and there's a couple a couple additions, sort of in terms of the framing device. They extend that oh, a little. Yeah. Bit. Of the, um, um, which I was, which I was fine with, and I think yeah. it works well. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I did hear it was like a rumor, but basically at the time of this film, they were already thinking about the sequel that eventually happened, and that's part of the reason the framing device ended the way that it did was because like they were like toying with the ideas of the sequel. Um, mm-hmm. so you know the framing device ends with. Christine's grave with a rose um because like there's this motif throughout the movie that they well it happens in the stage show too like he leaves her roses but in the show he very specifically leaves her roses that he ties with a black ribbon because he's goth as fuck um so you know that they came from the phantom you know that goth kid that sat next to you in algebra in seventh grade that's the phantom guys (laughs) that's the phantom he became the phantom um So, you know, and there is things like that that I like, like, you know, like the little details that wouldn't have worked in the stage show with the rose. Um, one thing that was a criticism of the movie was the Phantom's disfigurement because it was very much toned down. It was very subtle to the point where like one reviewer basically called it just a bad sunburn. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like hard to believe that, you know, somebody would do everything that they did based on what compared to other versions was a very minimal facial disfigurement. Yeah. Or that he would even be rejected with such a minimal rejected in society with such a minimal facial disfigurement. Um, yeah, that was very much sort of classic Hollywood. Like we still need him to be attractive. We still need him to be romantic. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. So that wasn't received super well. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing major that they really... The only thing, you know, is obviously they took out the sung-through portion of um, Phantom of the Opera because that doesn't really fly in a movie all that well. Um, 
It's tough to accomplish, we'll put it that way. Yeah, so some songs got compressed and some got deleted completely. But, you know, like, I don't mind the 2004 version. I don't think Gerard Butler is any sort of, you know, holding a candle to any of the stage phantoms, but... No. Yeah, it's, um, it is, it's fine. It's very fine. I mean, I own it. I don't, I don't hate it by any means. Um, I watch it on occasion. Fun fact, Ramin Karamloo, who is a very famous phantom at this point, is in the movie very briefly. He is Christine's father. Um, He would go on. I don't know if at this point he had already played him or he did it after this, but he ended up playing both Raoul and the phantom. Which is not totally unheard of. Uh, some actors have done no, both, yeah. but because he also played Christine's father in the film version, you know, people, you know, phantom historians and that sort of thing and cultural people have said he's the only actor to play Christine's three big loves, which is her father, uh, the phantom, and Rao. Um, so good for but, him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's cute and that's fun to say, mm-hmm. but. The 2004 movie is, like, one of, if not the only versions where Christine's father is even a character yeah. that could be played. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, like, literally, Ramin's part in the film is he figures in a picture and, like, vaguely in a flashback dying on a bed. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so he is the only actor who has played Raoul the Phantom and Christine's father. <laughs> so, good But for I him. do love Ramin Caramelou in terms of the... um. Uh, theatrical performers that have played the Phantom on stage. Yes, he is, he's very well received in terms of his portrayal of the Phantom. It's a very dynamic Phantom. He's talked a lot about the research that he did going into it with like different mental states and even mental disorders um, and just, you know, the things that, that he put in to make up his Phantom. Um, and it's definitely a fan favorite. Um, yep. He took his final bow as the Phantom at the Royal Albert Hall three-night concert event. Um, he said that's the last time he's going to play that character. So, and that was to celebrate the twenty-fifth, right? Yeah, the twenty-fifth anniversary. So that was five years ago. So, yes, he he's done. not my favorite. My heart mm-hmm. will always belong to Michael Crawford. Michael, original, the original Phantom. Phantom who I got to see during the reunion tour in the mid-90s. It was a very exciting time for me. <laughs> it was a very exciting time to be Craig. Um, yeah. But yeah, so briefly touching on the musical, because I don't want to go into too much history, because we're already pushing like 90 minutes right now on this. <laughs> um, is, um, so the musical in the 1980s, basically... Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, who is known for Cats and... Um, other things that suddenly escaping my mind. Uh, Joseph and the Amazing Joseph and the Amazing Dreamcoat. Dreamcoat. Uh, Evita. Evita. I was uh, gonna Jesus be Jesus Christ Superstar. I was gonna be like, did he do Sunset Boulevard? Was that him? <laughs> he did do Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> he did. Um, yes, Sunset Boulevard. Evita. Cats. Joseph. Phantom. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Andrew Lloyd Webber essentially was basically on vacation and found a copy of the Fans of the Opera in a used bookstore. And bought it and, like, read it and was like, oh, like, this is, I could see this being a musical and decided to pursue it. And which is ironically exactly how Lin-Manuel Miranda decided to bring Hamilton to the stage. Yes, who read a book. He was on vacation. 
picked up the Ron Chernow Hamilton biography and was like, yeah, this will work. Yeah. <laughs> His was probably a bigger undertaking than... <laughs> Phantom is kind of a cheat because it's like it lends itself so much to being a musical. It very um, much. Does. This is also not the first time that somebody tried to adapt it into a musical. Um, yeah. Nor happened... the last time. No, it has happened many times. This is just the most successful version. Um, but yeah, basically he called up his friend Hal Prince, who did a lot of his uh, other productions and said, I want to do this. And Hal Prince was like, great. You know, they got Charles Hart, who um, was the lyricist. And that's like the three big guys who, you know, were like the team on this. Um, and basically, you know, they they worked, you know, Sarah Brightman, who was Andrew Lloyd Webber's wife at the time, um, played Christine very famously, Michael Crawford, who at the time was known as basically a comedy actor in England, but had done musical, like was in Hello, Dolly, and that sort of thing, was brought on as the Phantom, and basically, you know, they created this lavish, gothic, um, musical version of, of the show. It opened to, I believe it did have mixed reviews when it opened, but, um, you know, here we are 30 years later. It has clearly, yes, it's been 30 years later. It has clearly outlasted any uh, of initial bad reviews. Um, it won seven Tony Awards, three Laurence Olivier Awards. It, uh, it's made its mark. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it either on stage or on the screen, if you haven't read it, there are plenty of options for you to experience the story. All of them are interesting. <laughs> Many of them are very good. And a couple of them are <laughs> questionable. At least uh, fun to watch with friends and a bottle of your favorite alcohol of choice. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you guys <laughs> for um for listening and we came back with a bang. Nice big long episode. Um we will be back at you again soon with what are we coming back with soon? The smell. <laughs> Some stuff. Um Some stuff. I mean, we're we were doing talks to finally get that um, horror video game podcast out there that we've yes, been talking about for a sure. while. Um, there's nothing really big coming out right now, um, but this year we are determined to not miss uh, Walpurgis Noct and actually get that. Maybe we'll talk about the craft. Who knows? Um, there's a lot. It's, there's yeah. going to be a lot, guys. And, it's you know, Valentine's be... Day just lends itself to my bloody Valentine. Of course. Which did we, we did that last about. year? We did that last year, but we can find a way to make it new again. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. 2018, it's going to be a good year for horror, I think. 2017 was a good year for horror. Yeah. In, and um, so there's a lot to talk about. There is. There's always something be... to talk about. Be sure to um, talk with us on Twitter, where you can find us at uh, Splatter Chatter 666 without the vowels. If you just search for Splatter Chatter, we will pop up right then and there. Be sure to be on the lookout for our new logo. Yes. 
Thanks, you can uh, follow us on the blog at splatterchatter666.blogspot.com. You can follow us on Tumblr. Where can they find us on Tumblr, Miss Uh Splatterchatter.tumblr.com. Splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can follow us on Instagram as well, which is... Um, just Splatter Chatter, uh, Splatter Chatter 666, I believe. Splatter Chatter 666 on Instagram. And if you really, really love us, you can donate to us on Patreon. Yeah. We now have a Patreon page. We have uh, three levels of donation tiers, each with fun rewards and prizes that you can get, um, depending on how much you donate. If you feel so inclined to donate to us um we have um we have a newsletter in the works that you can be subscribed to mm-hmm. we are opening ourselves up to take questions from our listeners that we will address on the show and we are opening ourselves up to take topics whole topics that we will dedicate an episode whole topics. to Something that you really want us to talk about. Uh, your favorite horror movie or your favorite horror novel or new TV show that you're watching on Shudder and you want us to talk about it. Well, if you donate a certain amount, we will. Yeah, we'll do it. Don't tempt us. Don't us. And... Uh, if you also feel so inclined, we would love it if you would uh, rate and review us on iTunes, uh, where you can find the podcast, and you can also find the podcast on SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. Am I missing anything, Miss Mel? I don't think so. You have no excuse not to find us and hunt us down on the internet. That's true. Hunt us down. Stranger style. Predator style. <laughs> The Both predator. of which there are sequels coming out this year too. So we will we will tackle those later. All right, guys, we have talked your ears off. So oh until we see you next time, be sure to keep up the creep, and we will say au revoir, adios, and das vidanya. <laughs>